Welcome to another edition of the Columbia University Sports Podcast, the Cusp Show, where we talk about the business of sports. Uh, I'm Joe Favorito, flying solo this week at the end of the summer of 2017, as my co-host Tom Richardson is off uh, with a little vacation time before we get back to school in just a couple weeks. Many of you will be listening to this probably as the Columbia program has started again for the fall and everybody else is back to school. So good luck everyone with this semester. And as we reach the semester, the beginning of the semester, and colleges and high schools starting again, we wanted to talk about a little bit about college sports, but not traditional college sports, where esports is going and where gaming is going in college. Um, and Maurice decided to bring in someone today, as I happen to be walking in the room, who just happened to be involved in that space because we were going to have someone else join us as well. And now we have two for the price of one to talk about esports. The college space, the high school space, where it's going, where the personalities are coming from, uh, and kind of what the next evolution is going to be. So Taylor Schrote, correct, the CEO of the Electronic Game Foundation, and Jason Greenglass, the EVP of eSports for Evolve Talent Agency. Guys, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us. Yep. So let's uh, kind of get started. Uh, Tyler, talk a little bit about what you guys are doing, and I hate to call it the NCAA of esports and gaming because it's not really, but uh, and, and then uh, you know, we're going to kind of pull Jason into that because Jason was there at the beginning with Robert Morris University in Chicago. Um, so, talk a little bit about what you guys are doing and uh, where it is now in the beginning of 2017, how you got here, and what you think is going to happen over the next couple months. Yeah, so to, to kind of get into that analogy, we, we started to think of ourselves more as like the next generation of it. So taking the things that the NCAA has done really well for traditional sports, helping esports get to a point where you have the same type of uh, infrastructure and, and power and opportunity for both students and universities and build something specifically to esports. Uh, dealing with some of the, the, the areas that we would call ripe for potential improvement. Uh, so we originally started uh, in 2013 when I was just running tournaments out of my dorm room. Where was uh, it? At RIT, okay. uh, Rochester Institute of Technology. Uh, and at that point, we didn't really know where I was going, but I've been involved in esports since I was 10, so going on about 15 years now. Uh, and as we were kind of going through that, we started to think about how it, it could become something significantly more. We knew that you'd have to start to get administrators involved in that process to make sure that there was a sustainable future for it. And that led us down this path where we started to explore the parallels between esports and traditional sports, ways that we could improve upon that model, and ultimately set to work uh, working with administrators at uh, the college level at the time, uh, now including high schools, to help them develop programs, uh, which means everything from teaching them how to talk about esports, both amongst themselves and their staffs, how to and their parents are at home too, and their parents so. especially. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, kind of helping educating them. Yeah, the, educating the broader population about what esports are, uh, the positive impacts they've had on, on people, you know, throughout the industry as long as it's been around, uh, and then the analogy of the NCA comes in when we talk about governance. So the second piece of what we do is all about lead governance, uh, which is pretty similar to how the NCA works, uh, similar structure and rules and compliance and all that stuff. And the third category is all about media and production and, and education. So. Ultimately, we kind of look at it as a, a full-stack, easy, out-of-the-box delivery system for a college that wants to get into esports uh, to walk them through the whole process and get them up and running quickly. Great. Uh, and Jason, speaking of colleges, uh, you were kind of there at the beginning in a very kind of non-traditional role getting involved in this. So talk a little bit about your background, but really kind of the start of some of the things that Tyler touched on at Robert Morris University in Chicago, which is really kind of... The, the first one that kind of saw this as an opportunity in the, the esports space for undergraduates. Yeah, certainly. So my background is a little storied. Uh, I actually come from a legal background. Uh, I went to school at George Washington University. Oh, that's where my daughter was. That's oh, funny. Very so. cool. Uh, school of International Affairs. Uh, Buff and Blue. So. <laughs> Absolutely. I uh, still remember that fight song, yeah. actually. <laughs> so I go back and I do international relations. My background in law is in international criminal justice, war crime tribunals, international special tribunals. Everything that esports is all about. Absolutely. Right. Um, really bringing games. people together. Games, exactly. absolutely. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure the DOJ doesn't find it any fun in games. But uh, notwithstanding that, ultimately find myself back home in Chicago when the announcements made that RMU, uh, Robert Morris University of Chicago, is going to be putting together this athletic scholarship program for League of Legends. 
I lived kitty corner from it and just said, oh, isn't that interesting? I've been gaming since, uh, I can't remember, I think the first thing I ever played was Pilot Wings on the original Nintendo. Uh, I played Pong. There so, we go. So I think you've got that my, was my first game too. My older brother brought it back from the flea market, I think. Mm-hmm. So I went to, I actually set up a meeting with Kurt Melcher, who's the assistant athletic director at Ronald Morris University and the head coach, Ferris Kansman. And this was 2013? This was 2014. 2014. If my correct. And basically just wrote my position there. I told him where my knowledge was in the game. I've been playing League of Legends since uh, mid-early season one. Um, I was able to really have a high-level strategic conversation about not only macro play, map rotations, item builds, meta, team compositions, all the things that specifically relate to the sport, but then also have this background where I was the most educated person in the room, athletic director included. Um, and having a voice in that room where you have, you know, think of this room as the, an incubator. For the first time, you get all of these young, passionate, intelligent, and highly motivated individuals all together pursuing this passion at the same time. But they now have an opportunity to be given a voice that says, yes, this can make you a better person. Spending this time cultivating this skill that you have and the passion that you have, if you do it the right way, you can develop the right tools where you can look back and say, I know how to time manage. I know how to be disciplined. I know how to structure myself in terms of juggling work, school life balance, and obligations to teams. And having that voice outside of the, oh, look, you didn't do this combo right. You, you missed your micro. You missed your CS. Having someone who actually comes from this more educated six school sort of success background with what you look at someone saying traditionally like a parent like oh we went to law school it must be very successful it's not necessarily the case there are a lot of people that go to school and have trouble finding success in their own way but it was i feel incredibly important to provide these young men and women as we had both men and women in the program that that voice and having the parents understand that they're not just going to be playing games for fun i expected and anticipated my players to grow up and be young adults and take ownership of the process. I wasn't going to just hand them the success. And how has it evolved for Robert Morris to this point? So Robert Morris has evolved the program to expand into a number of additional esports. They now do Counter-Strike, Global Offensive, Hearthstone, Dota 2, Heroes of the Storm, and Overwatch. Wow. Uh, I think there are other plans to bring in other sports. Um, at, well, in my time there, I head coached the varsity team head coached a number of uh, junior varsity teams and head coached a Heroes of the Storm team. Uh, the transition to Heroes of the Storm simply because we wanted to get into that space. It's very exciting. Blizzard is really supporting the uh, Heroes community in Collegiate through TESPA um, and they aptly named Heroes of the Dorm. I, yep. think. I think that was a very well-named uh, event and it's great to see them put it together. Uh, although it sh- there's a big tectonic shift when moving from something like League of Legends to Heroes of the Storm they're in the same genre, but the requirements on how the players interface with each other, interact with each other, prepare for the games, while they are similar in many respects, there's a huge, huge difference in terms of where that weight is applied at the stage of the game. In League, if you have a bunch of players at the highest level, they may not always have to be talking with each other. Off the bat, always. You may have one or two guys who are feeding information and everyone's relying on that. Heroes is completely different. All five people have to be on the same page. Imagine everyone needs to have the IQ of the quarterback and then be able to synergize and connect with each other within uh, seconds of reaction time for 45 minutes, but it's hero, so 25 minutes straight. <laughs> wow. Uh, so, Tyler, let's talk a little bit about kind of what Jason just talked about. And when you have the NCAA, which I never really thought about is the NCAA as it exists today for in traditional collegiate sports is multiple sports. So I guess that that would be the idea for what you're trying to do is take multiple games and figuring out which schools can excel in certain games and put together teams, which schools can excel in other games. So that's question number one. Question number two is what was started at Robert Morris? Was that kind of the genesis of where it is, where you think this is going to go? And is that a model that you think can be replicated and is being replicated at some schools and who are the schools who are doing it? Yeah, so the way that we kind of look at the, the programs that we help build at colleges on the ground are, we always emphasize the idea that they're esports programs, not a League of Legends program. And the reason that we do that is because games tend to have up and down cycles in terms of popularity, uh, and given that you may not have the longevity that you know football or baseball or whatever has enjoyed, it's important that a school uh, is aware of that and able to kind of move in and out of different games. And we as the governing body set up the process to say, 
here's X number of games, say 15, that meet a certain level of criteria in terms of things like monthly active users, uh, interest and engagement in terms of uh, popularity on something like Twitch or otherwise, and then recommend games to universities to say, these are where you're most likely uh, going to find a sustainable number of players, where you're most likely to see the highest level of engagement from your general community, um, and kind of give them the tools to, to build into that. Um, whether it's helping them find coaches or whatever uh, and, and kind of building the system to be better around that. Um, generally, we, we like games that have at least a three to five year horizon uh, because we want to make sure that anybody that comes in as a freshman, obviously, it can expect to still be playing the same game in four years. Uh, but understanding that as that popularity cycle changes, you never really know. Um, so where that goes in the future is, is still kind of up in the air, but the way we look at it is if you build the infrastructure for any game to come in, uh, as they rise in, in popularity or support or whatever, uh, the, the infrastructure is still there. And, and the infrastructure that Robert Morris created, is that kind of what you expect schools to do? To a point, yeah. One of the biggest things right now is you see uh, out of the roughly 40 colleges that offer some level of esports scholarships, uh, most of them are like D3 schools. And there right. hasn't. And what are some of the schools? Uh, so you have like Maryville, Robert Morris was the first. Uh, you have West Kentucky, there's, uh, the biggest is University of Utah, uh, the first big name outside of, or the first headline catching name other than Robert Morris was UC Irvine. Um, so there's the a number answers. of schools. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> so you find a lot of different schools with uh, now varying backgrounds. Uh, the Peach Belt Conference just put together a tournament. Uh, big Ten Network put on a tournament because a group of students out of, uh, I think it was Penn State, decided that they uh, they wanted to put on a Big Ten tournament. Mm -hmm. They wanted BTN to originally sponsor it, and it actually evolved into a much bigger project, which is now going to be an annual thing. Um, so you see, uh, both from a governance perspective with us and groups like TESPA, NACE, CSL, ULAL, all of them take a different approach to where we see the long, going, long game going in terms of the overall development of the environment. And when it comes to individual schools, you see significant variance in how people structure their programs, what level of staffing and support they receive from the universities, whether their uh, League of Legends roster is only five people, or I think Robert Morris has 60, including their backups now. <laughs> we have a number of teams, and I can go into that. Yeah. Not yeah. To, to really so, try to, so all of those different things are not standardized, and so part of the conversations we have with everybody from you know commissioners of different conferences down to the students that are running kind of the grassroots efforts on each campus is how can we best involve the, the broadest population of students and keeping that focus on the competitive aspect and obviously being the best, but also expanded to be educational, uh, engaging for somebody who may not want to be a part of the program but wants to enjoy that kind of community that comes with it. So it's we've seen a lot of really good practices of it. A lot of them sort of mirror what you would see in a traditional athletics program. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of the specifics, some things have been more successful in different environments uh, and it's hard to tell. I mean. One of the, the, I guess, I wouldn't use the word outlier, but certainly one of the smaller schools that have gotten into it was Stevens College in Missouri. They're a 500 undergrad, all-women's college that decided to get into an esports program. And so... Now, why, why would they do that? Is it because it's cheaper than putting together a men's football team? You would have to ask them. Okay. I, I would assume that it was kind of the same reason that most small schools get into it. It's... It's revenue. Trying yeah. to find students. It's novel. It helps with recruitment. It's certainly something that can be really highly engaging. And overall, it's not that expensive to get a program set up. Sounds also, like rugby too. It's the same way. But it's also incredibly low maintenance because once you have the initial, you know, startup of actually getting either a room or the network put together, the computers, and so your, you know, your players, your athletes can play it. it it's it's very you know easy going to just kind of keep it running. Yeah, and so I, the structure of their program will likely be very different than like a University of Utah. Right. It'll be very different from our on our U, and I think the the challenge is going to be when you add real regulation to it. How do you account for those differences and make sure that you don't uh, alienate one group or another? So, question for both of you on sure. the how does it make money standpoint? But you see now where traditional college sports have evolved to where they are. Mm -hmm. um, and Jason, you work with talent on, on, on the professional side of, of making money, yes. which, by the way, can factor into colleges, correct? They can yeah. be paid because there's no... So so if you're a school, why, Columbia University, okay, Michigan, why would you do this? Is Are there revenue streams? I mean, there's this mirage out there of, oh, we're going to fill our arena to do events, which may or may not be true. 
And are there revenue streams that colleges now can look at, other than recruiting and bringing in tuition for students sure. from around the world? What are the revenue streams that you guys see, Jason? So just to jump in real quick, uh, I'm a passionate, passionate advocate and believer in the value of collegiate esports. I think that it has a very important and meaningful... And you are a traditional sportsman, too. You, yes, yes. Uh, although in recent days, I've had to enjoy... had less opportunity to enjoy traditional sports as I've had to put more time into esports. Okay. And it's really weird to now say traditional esports, uh, but it's we're actually moving in that direction. What do you mean by traditional esports? What do you mean by that? Uh, well, if you look at something like League of Legends, yes. a lot of people would say like StarCraft would be the granddaddy of esports as we understand it, but the League of Legends actually has done the most work to elevate it into the mainstream, and so you would say that that might be a traditional esport. However, if you look at very, very passionate fighting game communities, people in who play Super Smash Brothers might actually take objection to the fact of you calling them an esport because they have received no official support from Nintendo, but have had to do it entirely grassroots from the ground up. And that's kind of the difference between gaming and esports, correct? I mean, there's a bigger gaming community out there, and there we'll is. touch on before we finish about NBA 2K and, and NASCAR and yeah, the other things. Certainly, and I would argue that, that I would actually argue that Smash Brothers is a traditional gaming esport. It right. kind of is a hybrid, but I would say that the NASCAR is a non-traditional. Right. I would say that the current sort of hype around sim racing tends to be non-traditional esport. It may evolve to that direction, mm -hmm. but when we think about what has traditionally been associated with esports, we're thinking team-based activities or one-on-one -on -one showdowns through a display of either exceptional mental and physical mm -hmm. acuity or skill over a period of time. And some of these games just don't fall into that cookie-cutter build mm -hmm. right now. So that's not to say that it couldn't. But that's, it's sort of a strange thing to start speaking about. But getting back to where it was, where do schools of course. For Yeah. So having, looking at revenue for, for collegiate schools, it's a very good way for schools to enter a space where they don't need to create physical posters or banners on the side of a highway to get information out there. Hmm. You can very cheaply create a Twitch channel. You can very easily put your school's uh, uh, alma mater and branding and excitement and hype into a very public space that's very freely accessible and you can promote that internally. Now how does that transition into money? It's very difficult, but I think that it's doable. I look at collegiate esports more, I guess, realistically speaking, collegiate esports is a recruitment tool where you can bring in more revenue for the university through the ability to bring and attract more students in an era where we see declining admissions. Uh, and, and people questioning the value of going to school. I would say that kind of mirroring parts of that, like it, it definitely depends on what you define and count as revenue. So if you think of revenue as the potential uh, tuition dollars that you're going to generate from a new student that's coming to you specifically because of esports, that's something that happens right now. It's why a lot of small universities got into it in the first place. Um, and because a school that would never have gotten national headlines previously suddenly announces an esports program, at least for the first couple, you see an immediate return there. When you think about it, where it goes into the future, that gets significantly harder because you're not only, if we lived in a perfect world, you could say what, how, what works in traditional athletics in terms of broadcast rights, merchandising, licensing, all the, the things that you expect to see highly commercialized from like NCA revenues or whatever, that is in the, that's an aspirational thing for us. The difference because student you can pay. So if an ex school yeah. wants to create something, they can actually pay their or, or those those students can right now go out and sell sponsorships if they wanted to, correct? Yeah, there's I mean, part of the, the cool thing about our position right now is there are no regulations that tell you what to do. And speaking of which, to jump in on that, something that we took a great deal of pride in at Robert Morris was the idea that none of our students ever had anything taken away from them. If they went to an offline tournament at a LAN and they won, the players got that money. We as a program took nothing from them. We drove them to Eastern Michigan to play for Gamers for Giving. We had both our first and second string varsity teams play. They took first and second. We told them we're a team. We're all there together. And even though the first team, our first varsity starters got first place, they all decided to split it equally amongst the 10 guys. Prize money. Prize money mm -hmm. um, for, I think it was $3,000 A little different from the NCAA. A little bit, yes. Because we believe that there's, there's truly something that they earned here that they're putting themselves on the line mm -hmm. for. And there's something you also touched, Tyler, which is this idea that how you define revenue. And I think that it may be aspirationally, or the idealism in me, says that there's uh, the ability for universities to generate a tremendous amount of goodwill in the communities that they operate in. 
Now, some universities may not care about that as much. Smaller ones may very well care quite a bit. But I recall putting together a number of different uh, invitational tournaments for local high schools at Robert Morris University where these high school kids were either in the high school star league or they had their own intramural league that they were just doing in, within their district. We had them come out to RMU, we had them play in our arena, we had uh, casters actually come in and cast the event, the parents got to watch their kids. So yes, in a weird way, you could say that that would ultimately result in recruiting, but however, it definitely will create and engender a lot of goodwill and respect for the institution where parents will see a greater value to sending their children to go there to learn to become young adults. And, and also on the learning side, uh, as we sit here at the end of August, we're coming off the eclipse mania of this past week. <laughs> and I think one of the things, as we sat there and, and we had driven back from vacation, and my son, who uh, was involved and actually won the world championship in robotics, kind of along the same lines, yep. um, had all his video and camera stuff on our deck in New Jersey, taking pictures of, of what we could see in New York, which was pretty amazing. He actually got a great shot. Mm -hmm. But I was sitting there and having listened and being a big fan of Neil deGrasse Tyson and and um, uh, Bill Nye, the science guy, sat there and said, man, I wonder if this will inspire kids to get involved in STEM. And will this help bring in, and I would imagine, as you guys talk about this, that there probably is a STEM opportunity for schools that are very involved in science, technology, what's the E? E is engineering, engineering and math, right? Yeah. Um, that could tie very nicely into that, that community, correct? And Absolutely, and even dovetailing off of that, you know, aside from the students that we had that were doing computer science or computer technologies, computer engineering, all of that, I've, I pushed very strongly internally, and this kind of goes to what you were saying, Tyler, about how different schools set up their programs very, very wildly different from each other. But I pushed very strongly for our students who weren't on starting varsity teams to actually spend time being a student uh, assistant coach mm -hmm. to do analyst work to watch tape and to be there with the coach and learn on video learn on video so. but I asked I specifically asked one of my substitute players so for here's a storm I coached a team of three grandmasters at one point before some of their ranks changed and two diamond players or two master players and we had a bronze player who was trying to get to silver trying to get to gold and obviously could not keep up with these guys but he was incredibly passionate and I said look what you're going to do is you're going to do everything I do you're going to take all the notes. You're going to do all the feedback. You're going to, you and I are going to compare notes after every game, and I want to hear what you think. Gotcha. And then, after every game, when I'm giving feedback to the team, you're the first voice to speak. I want you to give your contemporaries mm -hmm. your feedback, and I don't want them to care what rank you are at all. And you need to find that voice. Because what I hope to do is if we can implement that across League of Legends, here's a storm, Counter-Strike, it doesn't matter, that could go towards a certification program where now you have students who are getting inspired and trained literally on the job but as part of their education, of which a scholarship can make it more affordable, to then go off and enter this new workforce that has a true need of experienced individuals to enter and support staff for the Overwatch League, for the Kraft family, and for the Will Ponds, and for the immortals that are out there. Because so much of this industry is you're building the plane as you're flying it. So what better way to create the next generation of individuals to bring more stability and longevity to it than by providing a learning opportunity for those who go to school to have the opportunity to work in that space before it's a profession. Tyler, is, are those kind of the discussions that you're, you're having with schools? And who are some of the schools that are trying to replicate that now? as you move into the fall and the winter of 2017-2018. Mm -hmm. Now, if I can go back for just a second to finish on the revenue point. Yes. Two things that I wanted to mention. We're all about money anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so, the, the, the thing about that is, like, the, the important thing to remember right now is there really is no revenue in college esports yet. But I, there's no revenue in a lot of college traditional sports as well. I agree completely. Yeah, of course. And I, I strongly believe that esports as a category of analogous to traditional sports will get to a point where you'll see billions of dollars in revenue generated. What timeline or path it takes to get there is unclear. But for scale purposes, like the entire revenue generated by the entirety of the esports industry across everything was less than the billion dollars that was paid for the Buffalo Bills. Right. So like... Those types of things are perspective that we keep in mind and everything we're doing is foundationally important. So when we think about... But you both agree that this conversation will be different in three years. Oh, or completely. four years or five years. This conversation will be different in 18 months. 18 months, even better. We move, better. We're moving that fast. When we're talking about revenue, yes, we're all about the business, but it's important to reflect that our business moves at a speed that is unheard of in other industries. I mean, you have to have 
such agility, agility from a business sense in order to shift and stay relevant to what you what you pointed out earlier, Tyler, was if a game is going to lose popularity, if a game is no longer going to have the same active player base, how are you then going to transition and, and have sort of the nuance to pick up what is the next big thing and how are you going to turn that from what you see as a potential business opportunity to a operational business model? Got it. So, so back, back yeah, to where on, So in education, that is my favorite topic to get into with esports because when I started running tournaments and you know started running teams when I was 10, it was all about competition. Like it was very straightforward. Like I want to be the best Counter Strike player in the world, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to get there. And that's kind of where it stopped. When we started getting schools involved with it, we uh, we found the the opportunity started in high school. So the example that I always use is when we got to start working with uh, high schools in Connecticut. They came to us and asked us to help run a league that they were putting together as a grassroots movement and ultimately kind of adopted into the, the structure of how our, our governance is built. We started seeing how different schools were adopting esports at a much rap- more rapid pace than I would have ever expected. And so when we started to help high schools build programs, the focus was less uh, well, equally in competition and education where you use competition as the core and the driver and the thing that is kind of that sexy draw for students that really love playing games. And then you get to bring in all the educational things that you started to talk about where you have uh, a couple different use cases where you could have somebody that's taking a stats class and they're using an esports data set or that same student Mm -hmm. is going and working as an analyst for the program right after school. And so they may not be the best League of Legends player, they may not be the best Overwatch player, but they're still contributing and gaining experience that is interesting. Learning about teamwork. Right. We learned a, there, uh, there's actually something uh, tremendously important about a collegiate esports program that we have not touched on yet. Before there were collegiate esports programs, the only way to actually get esports experience was to somehow find yourself on like your local garage team, you know, like a band. You're all just maybe going from team to team, amateur team to amateur team, or if you somehow found yourself in the professional scene, you'd be working for TSM or Cloud9 or Immortals, and you'd be an analyst. That was the only way you'd get that experience. So you had a very closed circuit where there were very few new ideas, fresh takes, and new people coming in and injecting new energy and ideas into the space. That was one of the major reasons we saw cross-regional play have such a heavy impact on the way the games were actually being played once you had that exchange of ideas between Korea, North America, Europe. So that's what you mean by cross-regional as a global kind of sharing of of play. Right, but now with with the advent and really the solidifying of collegiate esports, you have a constant stream of new energy, new ideas, people thinking creatively and getting this experience without having to try and do it as a career. Their first experience will not be on the job. Their first experience is going to Mm. be in this collegiate space that they will then enter into this professional space and be able to shift the entire way in which we start thinking about it. So I think that it it provides more sustainability and it definitely provides more stability for the professional space that we have these individuals who are now, while they're in their first or second year in school as underclassmen, six years from now, these are going to be the industry leaders who've had this experience and can build off of this. So Tyler, going back to the original question was, so where are you seeing schools coming in? Yep. And at what level? And does it have to be, you know, the, the sexy schools are, you know, the Big Ten schools or University of Utah? Um, does it have to be at that level for you guys to be successful? And is there a difference on what a University of Utah is going to spend versus a Michigan? Very much so. I mean, the same way that you find that like UT Austin generates, I think it's what, $360 million a year from their athletics programs and spend an amount proportionate to that, uh, as opposed to someone like RMUs, whose traditional athletics budget is going to be significantly smaller. You'll see the same disparities in esports as it starts to progress. The difference being like the initial capital to get that going isn't all that much, and most of the big schools haven't gotten into it in the same way. Mm-hmm. So our focus with EGF has primarily been on big schools that are going to make that impact and that are going that are familiar with the issues that we're trying to work through when it comes to a comparison to like the NCA. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason that we've been able to do that is because again you have no regulations to start from. And we get to go to people that you know potentially have been very vocal critics of the NCA and say, "Here's what we can do better. Here's how it works, and here's the budget that it's going to take to make it start." Interesting. Um, and you know we've helped. We've consulted with programs that have 
less than $10,000 to get the budget started. We've also worked with schools that have more than $3 million to get started. Wow. And that goes into like facilities and building and things like that. So it's not always going to, you know, hiring a coach or anything quite as extravagant as like a Michigan State head coach. Mm-hmm. Uh, but those types of things go back to the idea that these programs are meant to be more than just the five people you see playing League of Legends and you're starting to see more experimentation. So the reason that I brought up Connecticut and everything that we did with high schools there is because we were able to build out those educational programs with the idea based off of two ideas. One being that when I was in college and started my first business manufacturing longboards, I was taking business classes during the day and going and applying those skills to my business immediately at night. And the other side is when we started to look at the the most impactful age for people to start to care about education, obviously, is when they're younger. And we looked at uh, case studies like some Chicago schools, uh, I forget the name of the, the specific one, but they started dedicating a month of every semester to giving their high school students internships mm-hmm. and showing why what they were doing in a classroom mattered. And so when we started to develop those programs, it made it much stronger in high school. And when we went to a college, it was a much easier sale to say, or a, a recruitment to say, we have these really awesome programs that cover both of these things. These students are ready to go. They're looking for these opportunities and you can cover anybody from any background, whether you're dealing with the areas of higher or lower affluency. And what we were able to do in Connecticut was uh, we ran a pilot season last spring. Uh, We had about 250 students from uh, 18 different schools participate. And we helped build these programs out to look like that. And then we held the state championships on UConn's campus. Mm -hmm. And our partnership with UConn allowed us to, uh, allowed UConn to give scholarships from their School of Engineering to the people that won. And so you see these really cool integrations to say, here's a path for esports that allows you to experiment and play with all these different things that may not have been allowed if you think about traditional NCAA mm-hmm. rules. Um, and it goes back to how we think about you know where all these different things could go and should go and why we included high school and what we've been working on building out. Great. So two, two things I want to touch on before we let you guys go. And then we have two questions that we ask everybody at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, Jason, your business is really on the personalities of professional esports. Um, and one of the things that has to evolve, whether it's on the collegiate side, maybe leading to the professional side, uh, or on the collegiate side as well, are kind of the storytelling and the personalities. Mm-hmm. On the day-to-day business side, talk a little bit about what you do, how you have started to build the stories and the personalities and the brands of professional esports players, and will college esports play into that as almost like a feeder system as we go forward. Well, you're stealing my thunder because I was going to go exactly there and I was going to say, I hope you don't mind if I bring it back to college. So so from a day-to-day, I'm working with these professional, we call them athletes because they get P1 visas for (laughs) for athletes according to the U.S. government, but I do believe that there's an athletic quality to it. So that's not an argument for here, but we'll just go ahead and call them athletes. And so when I work with my players and my athletes... And who are some of the ones that you you can touch on, too, well, we have we have professionals in the Overwatch community and the League of Legends community and Years of the Storm and Hearthstone. I mean, across all of the traditional esports, um, some of our clients have been in our press releases. Whether mm-hmm. that's and I for now we'll just sort of sure. pass yeah. off on, the, yeah. on, on on naming names, but it's it's they're out there and it's it's easy enough to find. Um, and you know what? This is a great point to actually jump in on this. When you're working with players in esports, this is not the same as working in the NFL or the NBA where people want to have their name thrown around because they're a big name and they want to feel like they can influence people just by their name alone. These are these are young guys who just they don't want to feel like they're getting taken advantage of anymore. They're they're working in a professional place whose history over the last four years has been to try and take as much value from them while giving them the least amount of pay mm-hmm. possible for the most amount of work. It sounds so, almost like baseball in the 1960s then, or the 1950s. It sounds like, it's, it's honestly, yeah. And, and uh, it, it's funny that you mentioned baseball, with the generational ticking time bomb that the baseball audience seems to show with the average age being 55 and only actually getting older. Um, esports looks to potentially promise a new source of where the, the youth are going to be spending mm-hmm. their time. So part of these storylines are going to come from this collegiate space. I have a number of players that I coached at RMU who went on to be professional, who left college to go to the pros, who were recruited hmm. literally mid-season out, and then we needed to... So you're John Calipari? Is that the, the way we should look at you? <laughs> I mean, I'll take the compliment, okay. but uh, I, I, won't, I won't self-title. Mm-hmm. But, you know, these, these, some of these guys have, have worked years before they came to RMU and had, had 
elevated their stock to the point that by the time they came to army, maybe that was the straw that honestly pushed uh, the matter over the edge for these orgs to actually take official interest in these players, but they are now in the LCS. We're looking at Signature Phoenix One, we're looking at Youngbin on Team Liquid, we're looking at Adrian for uh, Phoenix One. These players who were all part of our first season at RMU have gone on to have fairly successful careers in the North American LCS. So there's absolutely a storyline that can be set here. And even looking towards the who are already existing in the professional space, if you take Doublelift for example, Doublelift was kicked out of his parents' home and ended up crashing on the couch of Travis Gafford, who ultimately became a you know fairly well-regarded and respected name in the esports journalism scene, mm -hmm. and I think still is. And so you have these sort of intermeshing storylines of these individuals who have kind of made up the vanguard of the old guard of who exists in League of Legends, and now we have this new class coming up who literally are coming from colleges or are coming up through their own storylines of playing on a number of different North American challenger scene teams and getting a shot to then try out for some of these these organizations, either their academy teams or playing in the LCS. So I think that storylines is very important, but there is this underpinning amongst my clients that they don't want to be taken advantage of anymore. My job is to make sure that they're not, whether it's mm -hmm. their intellectual property rights being taken in perpetuity for forever just because they played on a team once, all the way to how many hours of additional sponsorship work that they have to do for the organization for that org's deal they've made with the sponsor of the month, in addition to all of their athletic and, and competitive obligations. And so, you know, using a, a somebody's name to say, oh, I rep them or I rep that person, um, we're protecting that because we want them to feel like if they want to put their name out that way, we'll do it for them. But if not, we're just gonna we're just gonna try and protect that confidence. And, and so, so is that one of the things as you go to colleges saying, "Hey, look, we can help you build up the next level of stars." And have you seen, even though you're, you're just kind of launching in the fall of 2017, um, more traditionally, have you seen like, "Oh, this guy is going to be." I hate to use the, the name, the Michael Jordan of. Of that Warcraft <laughs> that right. exists for League of Legends already. His right. name is Faker, and he's in right. South Korea. But I do want to bring up a very interesting point that Noah Winston, uh, CEO of Immortals, has brought up concerning collegiate esports, which is he's not quite convinced if collegiate esports is going to be the, the the springboard for professional play, or if it's going to be the uh, retreat for professional mm -hmm. players to go and then get the education that they for because they can get paid. There, there, there's no. There's no barrier entry for someone to go back to college or they've been paid in a sport to play, correct? Right, but even more than that, so to, to answer your question, the way that we view ourselves is a little bit more fluid than you would expect to see in the very regimented career path for a traditional athlete. So the reason that we kind of built our governance specifically to include high school and college is because your average age for someone being recruited to a pro team is going to be like their first or second year of college on the older side but you might have someone as young as 16 or 17, which means they're just graduating high school. So the way that we view it is you could have a path where you go high school to college to pro, you could go high school to pro to college, you could just go high school to pro and become a streaming personality or otherwise. And so we try to look at it as an opportunity for colleges to accept that and say, if you're a high school, here's a way that from a numbers game, you're more likely to get an opportunity to go to college and you want to go pro. Like, just mm -hmm. statistically, you have less than a, a thousandth of a percent of a chance to go pro. Therefore, your best bet is to go play in a college thing, and maybe that's your funnel into the pro world. Maybe it's through high school or otherwise. But uh, to your point about what Noah said is, if you have a player that, go, that skips college altogether, that means that they maybe left home when they were 17 to go be a professional. If they don't decide to go be uh, a personality, whether they get a casting job or an analyst or whatever, and they want to go back to school, that creates a whole different dynamic of how can you provide opportunities for them to do so. And some of the colleges that we've worked with have gone uh, the direction of saying, you, we, you can play on us, but a lot of them don't actually want to because once you spend you know X number of years in the LCS playing 10 hours a day, like you don't want to as much sometimes. Uh, so they might get a graduate assistantship or a scholarship really? to act as a coach. Or do something. What, what schools have done that? Are there a couple of schools you can name? Not at the moment, okay. But uh, it's something that's kind of—it's all on the horizon. Yeah, yeah. good it's, to know. It's all stuff that is kind of uh, developed into that. How we think about governance, how we think about flow, and the way that we help a college reconcile the cost that they may incur to get it started. 
and make sure any risk that they see is something that is turning into a positive opportunity both for their university and for the students that they're serving. Got it. Okay, so last question, and then we're going to ask you a couple things about where you get your information from and who you follow. Um, we touched a little bit at the beginning about gaming versus esports, and some colleges looking at what the NFL, the NBA, FIFA, now NASCAR, and um, a couple of other leagues are starting to do, Formula One is starting to do. Um, is that a path that you see, and, and have you dealt with any, any kind of professional players or schools that would come to you that would say, you know, we don't know anything about this Dota thing, but we know that kids on this campus like the NBA, so is that something that you can lead in? Is that part of what you're going to be doing? And then um, do you deal with any, any athletes specifically in those spaces? Is that an evolving space as well? So first on the college side. Yeah, so when it comes to the, the games that are supported and, and how a college interacts with them, whether it be a program structure or otherwise, we'll say you should focus on a, a program like League of Legends or Overwatch, which you know you can put together a highly competitive team for. It makes sense for us to get into to help kind of build that economic model that we want to see. And then we separate that from what we consider uh, engagement tools, I guess, is maybe a way to refer to them. Mm -hmm. So you know that, like, uh, if you think about your very stereotypical, like, fraternity type thing, like, you'll know that Madden or NHL or something like that's really popular with them. And that's obviously a very broad group of people. And they may not have an interest in League of Legends, but if you consider them both in the, gaming, the category of gaming, it, they don't have to be at odds with one another. Mm -hmm. So we often find it, it started with the high school level again, where you have people that were playing like the traditional esports titles and kind of following that competitive path. But when we would run LAN events, when we would do anything that talk about broader engagement, we would include things like uh, fighting games that have to be done in person on console, mm -hmm. NBA 2K, Madden, Formula One, things that may not have the, the stopping power that a League of Legends would have but does feature a really broad group of students. And that also gives us really cool opportunities to integrate with professional teams that now have uh, teams in the NBA 2K League, right. uh, because they're obviously interested in bringing in young people that have an interest in esports and are trying to reach them in whatever way is most relevant to them. Uh, and both of those kind of created opportunities to say, if you're narrowly focused on competition, here's tier one, here's an educational opportunity, and here's your broader engagement, which includes all these other games. And Jason, have you seen any kind of professional uh, representation coming along from people who are, could be professional Madden players, FIFA players. Is there oh yeah, we, we've worked. We actually represent uh, one of the top streamers in Madden, and mm -hmm. he's also you know put on Madden content long before it's been released because he is you know mm -hmm. loves working with him. We've worked with and talked with people who play for FIFA, play for FIFA, play FIFA, right. and, and and have relationships with. We've had conversations with uh, French and other EU football clubs. Um, soccer for those Americans mm -hmm. that don't know what football means in Europe, <laughs> uh, but they're they're there mm -hmm. and they're coming up, but they are going to be very different in terms of their reach and what their draw is going to be, and also what their what their value is. And this this is going to get into uh, without getting down too far into the weeds on this, how you determine the value or the market value or the value of a player's brand in a space like FIFA or 2K or Madden is even even in League of Legends or in Overwatch is an ongoing process. Mm -hmm. There's no magic bullet, there's no black letter law that you can just underline and say this is, we're gonna check these things off and they are this much. It's just, it doesn't work that way. It's something that's much more organic and much more fluid. It's, you know, what is their following like on social media? Do they have a Twitch following? Can they leverage their own personal brand to bring awareness with them no matter where they go? And is that something that's going to offset what their skill set is? If I have somebody that I represent that can hit 30,000 concurrent viewers on Twitch simultaneously, but that player is objectively not as great as the next player next to him, but the, the better player competitively has zero following, guess which player gets the bigger paycheck? The one who's got the following. And that's right. just that's just right now. That's just where the business is. Right. And so, to leverage that many people in a game like FIFA or Madden or NASCAR or 2K means that there's got to be an engaged player base, an audience mm -hmm. that is going to have that level of appeal to follow that storyline. We could have incredible storylines for for guys who are in Illinois who go absolutely ballistic when they open up that FIFA pack and they're known for being really really fun to watch. You have guys who can 
really, really light people up in Madden and, and have a tremendously moving story. But their value as a player in the professional space in terms of what you can ask for their paycheck to what you can say they are worth will vary wildly from a League of Legends player to an Overwatch player just purely on the scope and the scale which that game is accepted right now. And it also comes down to the amount of money that's available to support it. Because if you have a Riot game which is owned by Tencent, which means they essentially have unlimited dollars, they can build an entire franchise system and support it for as long as they want to. And you look at smaller games when you have the NBA now doing their NBA 2K League, you know there's serious money behind it and they're going to make it work somehow. And you're also starting to see other announcements like uh, this week Formula One announced that they were doing a Formula One league. NASCAR announced they're going to try and do something. So the fact that they're willing to put all that money into it, it shows that in whatever time period they see that money being put to use in the best way, it may be coming from a marketing mindset, but it provides paths for different people that are now creating, that are now going professional in whatever sense of the word it means. For us, we may not choose to support those because they don't fall out of the categories we normally would, but ultimately it comes down to like if you can find the money for it, wherever it's going to take you, you can do some pretty cool stuff with it. Good. And the wrinkle to that is if we go ahead and look at Turner E-League and we look at the Street Fighter uh, storyline that happened with Punk, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a guy who wasn't coming in as like a super favorite. Nobody really had him pegged to be like a sure thing for winning E-League. And he wins E-League, and then you go to Evo, and he's playing in Evo, and his mom becomes a storyline. Yeah. Because she was just so supportive. And that storyline, that interaction, that development of, of this character arc of, of this esports player who plays Street Fighter, I don't think it happens without E-League. I don't think it happens without it being a televised event. I certainly don't think it happens... With the money the tournament put into it. In in some respects, without the money the Turner put into it. However, I do think, though, that without the money that they would put into it, that was going to happen somewhere. He was going to play in Evo, and his parents were going to support him, and he's going to be this figure. There are are so many personalities that are out there of players I absolutely adore and I think would be true showmans. And to be fair, that's something that I see us lacking in the professional space in sports right now. We don't have showmen. Mm -hmm. We don't, not showboats, not people that are going to ham it up, but I'm saying somebody that can appreciate the spectacle and the audience perspective of being able to watch something to enjoy beyond just simply the exhibition of skill. Mm -hmm. Cool. So lastly, um, where do you guys get your information from? Who do you follow? Just in general, from a news standpoint, uh, are there places that, that you think are good sources, not just for esports or gaming, but just in general information about the world? Jason? Well, since I'm not a journalist, I can't use the whole, <laughs> I'm protecting my sources. But uh, I also don't want to give a lame answer. Um, I think for a lot of this, social media, mm-hmm. um, definitely keep your ear to the ground and, and go to Twitter Go and, and look at social media. Reddit is an awful place to get reliable yeah. information. I'll say that right now. Everybody who thinks they know something uh, and they put it on Reddit are now wrong about 99% of the time. Mm-hmm. And the 1% they're right about, they usually use to get to a wrong conclusion. But think for yourself go into social media and see what people are saying and follow the storylines you know if you really want to actually start connecting the dots you can also reach out to people read ESPN read uh, .esports I mean Mm -hmm. the media can be your friend but outside of being just an industry insider I mean I'm having a lot of my information from the source Mm -hmm. I'm hearing things long before it goes public and those things are just unfortunately I think it's not available to the vast majority of people that are out there unless you have a personal connection at Riot, Blizzard or the Mm -hmm. tier 1 orgs that are out there I definitely split my sources into two categories. One is I just built a Feedly that like includes ESPN, .esports, Yahoo Esports before they no longer were a thing. You know, anybody that kind of took up and covered it and has done it in a while and, and kind of goes beyond just stats. Um, so things like GoToGamer, you know, those mm-hmm. types of uh, publications. Uh, I also, just from our world, spent a lot of time in higher education newsletters and things just because schools tend to put them there first rather than otherwise when they make announcements or moves or whatever. Uh, but otherwise, I spend a lot of time with team owners, players, uh, journalists, anybody that's ever worked in the space longer than a year or have going to a conference to call themselves an esports consultant. <laughs> uh, but a lot of that comes through Twitter, and I mean, most of the news that you find will be like uh, a player or an organization or somebody will do the not great PR practice of putting out a tweet longer and just ranting about something and then 
you go through it and decide whether or not it's real and then Thorin and Richard Lewis will go through and decide whether or not it's credible. So between those two, like you find a lot of that information. Otherwise, it's you just spend a lot of time talking to a lot of people and being nice. <laughs> and then uh, lastly, where do people find you? So, so uh, Jason, where where on social media should people fo- follow you or and evolved? And then Tyler, same question. Sure. So you can follow me on Twitter at, at @ringglass. Uh, it's the same as my last name, uh, it's, as it sounds. And at Evolved Talent Agency, we are, we're on Twitter as well as our agency. Um, pretty much the best way to, to give me a follow. Although um, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm hesitant to start throwing shade, but I will say when you talk about Thorne and Richard Lewis, when you have people who are these tremendously powerful voices in the community, there's a double-edged sword because oftentimes it can lead people to stop thinking for themselves and just start taking and accepting the conclusions and the reasoning behind the individuals who have those powerful voices. So I know because I'm speaking to college students right now, I cannot in- encourage you enough to, when listening to media, when reading news stories, when listening to Thorne or Richard Lewis, do your own math, put things together and always remain skeptical because there's always another side of the story and sometimes the, there's no right answer. Things are fields of gray and when you're working in business, oftentimes it might seem right or morally correct or morally defunct, uh, it oftentimes is not so black and white as, as portrayed by the powers of the voices that be. Cool. Yeah, so you can find me uh, at T-S-H-R-O-T-T, uh, and you can find out more about EGF at EGF.TV. Great. Jason and Tyler, this has been unbelievably helpful. Uh, I think it was a lot to learn, and you know we're really appreciative of you joining us. Oh, thank you, Everett. Thanks for having us. Once again, this was another edition of the Columbia University Sports Podcast, The Cusp Show. I'm Joe Favorito from the co-host Tom Richardson, and we'll see you down the line. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Cusp Show, the Columbia University Sports Podcast. I'm Tom Richardson, and my co-host is Joe Favorito. My production assistant this week is Columbia student Reese Eisenman. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple's podcast app, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other key platforms. You can also find it at blogtalkradio.com forward slash the cusp show and you can get in touch with us on twitter at cu underscore sps underscore sports also you can find out more about our program columbia university sports management program by going online at sps.columbia.edu forward slash sports hyphen management thank you very much we'll see you next time